Hello, welcome to Full Circle, brought to you by participants and volunteers of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Tonight we feature the women's magazine, for which three First Voice graduates are producers. It airs on Mondays at 94.1 FM KPFA. Please stay with us. Welcome back. Women's Magazine was co-founded by Lisa Detmer, a First Voice graduate. In this first segment, the four women producers introduced themselves. Feminist women. Mulheres feministas. Zanone feminist. Vanyu vachikonzero chevakadzi. Nessa. Mujeres feministas. Yan femini. On femac TV. Nari Mukti Matapang na babae Kechimai ka ishk Welcome to Women's Magazine. The four of us who are the producers on Women's Magazine are gathering to talk about maybe things we want to cover, things that we're thinking about relating to feminism or women or whatever we're dealing with. And we can let's just start off by introducing ourselves. I'm Lisa Detmer. I do the second Monday of the month, and my show relates to feminist voices. And um, yeah, so how about you, Margo? You want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I'm Margo Okazawa-Ray. I'm your fourth Monday host. I'm really committed to broadcasting the voices uh, of women who are in transnational feminist movements around the globe. And specifically, I'm concerned about militarism, armed conflict, violence against women, and all the ways those are wrapped up with global capitalism, neoliberalism. Uh, over to you, Vilma. Hi, everyone. So good to be with folks and to be with my co-hosts and fellow producers of Women's Magazine. It's one of the oldest women feminist shows on KPFA. So proud to be a part of it. Um, I'm Vilma V, and I do the first Monday of the month. I'm a graduate of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I'm a professional feminist at this point, I believe. And uh, my show focuses a lot of what Margot talked about as well, uh, violence against women, um, the peace movement, which I think is on, I don't know where it is now with Ukraine, and but women have long been involved in peace and peace work, and that's what the original Mother's Day is about. So um, a lot of the... Nonviolence is also great interest to me. Um, economics in terms of global relationships, because I've been someone who's watched uh, Puerto Rico. I'm from I'm Puerto Rican, and the colonialism that's at its heart from that has uh, harmed Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans for years, and the imperialist uh, bent of the United States that has you know wreaked havoc all across the globe. And I've had a very awful front seat to it as a Puerto Rican person, and you know, born in New York, but parents in Puerto Rico, and I follow that very closely. All the stuff with the Caribbean, Cuba, Puerto Rico, Haiti, Santo Domingo always has a, a place for me in my slots and things that I uh, work on. And also my mother. So motherhood is also a big one. And I hope to do some stuff about maternal health that it seems to be just dropping with this uh, re uh what happened with uh, Roe v Wade being overturned and I'm just aghast like I know all the women who host with me are at what's happening um around our autonomy with our bodies and that is something that 
I constantly am concerned about and want to uplift those who are really fighting against what so many women are facing, which is just uh, abrogation of our reproductive rights. I could go on and on about this, but I'm going to pass it to my next host, um, my Javelin. And again, I'm really happy to be here. Hi, I'm Javelin, and I'm happy to be here with my feminist um, colleagues here on Women's Magazine. And I'm new to the to the uh, embracing of the word feminist through uh, Margot, who has been teaching me from what I love the most, stories. So she's she shared with me stories uh, around the world with women without resources who were feminists and were without all the resources and, and for folks to process and raise consciousness around. They did it because of the reaction that they had of the harm towards women's bodies, their lives, and their children. And this is throughout uh, history. And so when I heard those stories as a storyteller, I was deeply moved and understood that I had been resisting the word feminist because it had been, I learned it from it here in America among the social politics and the structures of America. Again, that shows our biases as Americans. We don't know. We don't sometimes think about the world beyond and, and Margot makes it her business. She makes it her business. And so she made it my business. So some of you will know me, uh, Women's Magazine, every third Monday, the space between us, which I started years ago, looking at these all the space between white women and black women and every woman in between that space, what holds us together and what separates us, right? And so that has continued to be an interest to me, because, uh, but now I'm looking at it in a way that the things that hold us apart become allies. Uh, as Velma said, how the question that she brought up about our bodies, how does these decisions about our bodies still remain in the hands of men and patriarchal and white supremacy? Is how does that happen? If we are mothers, if we are daughters, if we are sisters, if we are feminists, how does this happen in the 21st century? And so now that is moving me towards a whole nother way of thinking. Uh, and, and that is, is what holds us apart an investment, an investment, why we don't come together. What is our investment in the things that harm us that can't speak to our ears, speak to our souls? What are we invested in? What has happened in our thinking, our consciousness, our lives, our mother's lives, our sister's lives, those who identify, gender identify as women? What, is, what has been so indoctrinated in our system that we will, we will sacrifice a great deal of our, our, our life and those be behind us coming up in the world that are not even born? And so I'm, I'm, I'm being triggered to think about that. Triggered in a way, this means that I just simply wake up in the middle of the night when I should be sleeping, and I wonder what the heck is going on here. So it's still the space between us, but now I'm looking at the investment of the spaces. I just assume when I started the show that once we talked out loud, that we was going to come together. After this brief music interlude, we'll hear Lisa Detmer talk with some of the participants of the recent Frameline Film Festival, which took place in June. Today, we will be talking about some of the fabulous lesbian films playing at the San Francisco Frameline Film Festival. Frameline is the largest LGBTQA film festival in the world. We will be talking to Madeline Lim from Quackmac about her new documentary, Jewel, A Just Vision, and with writer and activist Jewel Gomez, who is the subject of this film, about the film and her life. 
And then we'll be talking to Lisa Marie Evans about her really important new documentary, In Her Words, 20th Century Lesbian Fiction. And lastly, we will talk to Allegra Madsen, who is programming director at Frameline, about some of the other fabulous lesbian films playing at Frameline. We'll start off by hearing the trailer from the new documentary, Jewel, A Just Vision. occurred to anybody that the perfect vampire would be a black lesbian. Her work is important for bringing historical figures who were queer to the present and to a whole new generation of audiences. Fictionalizing, humanizing, filling those gaps in the historical record with imagination, but imagination through a lens of the experience of living in the world as a queer person of color. You have to be able to imagine a better world to get to a better world, which is why I love writing. That was the trailer to the new documentary by Madeline Lim, which is about Jewel Gomez, and it's called Jewel, A Just Vision which will be showing at Frameline this month. And I'm very happy to have with me the director of this really sweet and powerful documentary, Madeline Lim, and the subject of this document documentary, Jewel Gomez, here on Women's Magazine. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, Lisa. Delighted to be here. And for those of you who don't know Jewel Gomez, she's an important figure in the LGBTQI plus community, as is Madeline Lim. Jill Gomez is a visionary writer with heart and feminist politics, an activist, and someone who makes marginalized voices get funded. And someone I have always felt had a lot of wisdom and brought people together by trying to create dialogue and coalitions across difference. And she's also a proud lesbian feminist of color. And all those are reasons enough to make a film about her. But Madeline, can you tell us why you decided to make this film celebrating and documenting the life of Jewel Gomez? Sure. Our origin story started actually when I um, completed a previous documentary called The Worlds of Bernie's Being, which was about uh, a lesbian visual artist. She was an abstract expressionist painter. She was a Chinese-American lesbian. And um, she had passed away in 98, and uh, the, the documentary was completed in 2013. So by that point, you know, she had already uh, passed for a couple of decades. When that film was completed, and, and for me, it was really important to honor Bernie's Bing's life and legacy and her art and activism. When that film was completed, um, that was when Jewel and myself started talking about documenting Jewel's art and activism in her life and legacy and as a living legend um, whose work is so important in our community. And I think for me, it was really important to 
give Jewel her flowers while she was still with us and not wait until, you know, one of our community members has passed away to then honor them and recognize their work. So that was sort of the the origin story. Um, and just to say that, you know, by that point, I think we met in 2005. So I think we had known each other maybe for, oh, I don't know, a while. <laughs> I think it's been about 18 years now, yeah, um, yeah. but but that film took about almost six years to complete. We started, you know, the very first production in 2016 when Jewel did her um, 25th anniversary reading of the Gilda stories at City Lights Books in San Francisco. And Madeline, uh, for those who may not know who Madeline Lim is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Quap Map, which I'm sorry to say uh, we aren't going to be able to air this in time to announce the festival that you all just had on, but it's an amazing group. Could you just, and you founded it. Can you tell us a little bit about that group? Sure, I founded QuackMap in 2000. So that was, you know, some 23 years ago. And um, primarily it's meant to support uh, filmmakers, to provide filmmakers, uh, particularly lesbian of color, uh, non-binary, gender non-conforming, transgender folks of color, uh, to provide filmmaking skills and to present their work at our annual Queer Women of Color Film Festival. Um, I founded it really because I had completed one of my documentaries in 1997 and I was on the film festival circuit with that film and I was I, I realized I discovered that I was among one handful of queer women of color filmmakers at all these different film festivals it was LGBTQ film festivals it was people of color film festivals there were art film festivals there were human rights film festivals and I was just among one handful of us and so to me the the question that came up was well if we are not the ones making films about our lives and our experiences, like who will, you know, are we waiting for someone else to do it and to get it right? So that was how QuackMap came to be. And the heart of QuackMap is really our filmmaker training program. And then we have the filmmaker, um, you know, the, the film festival, obviously this year was celebrating our 19th annual film festival um, and our distribution program. Which for people who don't know their, their training program is free. So really important. That's such a an amazing gift to the community. Uh, well, let's talk about this film, Jewel, with you. And Jewel, I love when you say in the film that you have to be able to imagine a better world to get there, and that's why you write fiction. In an interview with Victoria Brownworth in 2012, you were quoted as saying, everything I write in my activism as well centers around creating community, the responsible use of power, and the feminist understanding that we're all connected, and that includes our oppressions. In the film, you talk about being informed and influenced by a tribe of black, lesbian, feminist, and queer women. June Jordan, Audre Lorde, Barbara Smith, Cheryl Clark, all very out, radical, black, mostly lesbian, feminist. And you say in, your film, in the film you learned there was more to life than who you were attracted to, although you don't shy away from writing about sex and desire. Can you talk about those legendary feminist women of color and their influence on you for those who may not even know who they are, unbelievably. Well, yes. I'll start by saying how much I appreciate the work that Madeline does with QuackMap. And that was one of the reasons it felt like I felt so honored when she decided to do a film about me because the work that she does with QuackMap and film training and the festival 
is really about empowering queer women of color to understand what they can in fact accomplish despite what the culture says about them or about us, um, as well as creating community. Each one of the festival events is this celebration of community where people get together and it is the most diverse group of people coming to see the films. And so it really speak, the festival and Quark Map really speak to the things that I feel like I live my life for. I had the good fortune, I guess, of coming of age during a lot of movements, you know, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, lesbian activism. So I was always looking to other activists for pathways, pathways they'd taken uh, things that they thought were important. And, you know, one of the greatest things that ever happened for me was getting the opportunity to work with Audre Lord, And she's the one who really said that the Gilda Stories was actually a novel and I needed to spend the time doing the editing work to create a novel, which I did uh, with Nancy Berriano of Firebrand Books for a, year, a solid year of editing. And it was that faith in my work that Audrey showed and encouragement that really made the Gilda stories, helped make the Gilda stories possible. Another person who was really, has been very instrumental for me is the poet Christos. She's a Native American poet, lesbian, activist. And I read her work from, I don't know, the late 80s and till today. And I always find the passion, both desire and political passion in her work inspires me in my, in my own. She was one of my friends who really encouraged me to look at the Native American uh, parts of my culture that kind of got lost in the shuffle around the Black arts movement and the Civil Rights Movement. And so that, that sense of all of these things can come together and create a whole was really important for me. And, and I got that a lot of that from Christos. It's interesting, you know, June Jordan, I met at the Flamboyant Lady Salon in Brooklyn that was run by Alexis DeVoe and Gwen Hardwick. And that was Alexis and Gwen had this fabulous salon like maybe I think it was one Sunday a month it was where I first read anything from the Gilda stories and so Alexis and Gwen were really solid supporters of my work and an understanding again of how you create community by bringing people together they brought the people together in their apartment in Brooklyn and you could see the energy of sisterhood that was what we needed to sustain us and and I met June Jordan there and June was really funny. She said to me once, Jewel, I've, I've heard your work, but you really haven't written anything about your mother, have you? <laughs> and, you know, when June asks you about your mother, you kind of feel like, maybe I better write something. <laughs> and so I had a, that was the first time I did write about my mother because I wasn't raised by my mother. So she, and, and she was kind of on the edge of my life in many ways. But she was the one who actually uh, helped follow through on the Native American side of our family and, and did the research and stuff like that. So having grown up, and I say grown up, meaning, you know, through my 
20s and 30s with a lot of particularly literary lesbian activists and queer activists. I feel very fortunate because it really supported my ideals around literary feminism and activism. Yeah, and it feels like times have changed. I was just watching the ultimate queer dating thing on Netflix, <laughs> and we are everywhere. But, you know, I don't think that the, the feminists and the radical queers are in these shows. So, and, and so that's another thing I think you're doing, Madeline. You're really doing a mitzvah because uh, you're bringing back a lesbian feminist and lesbian feminist of color history. And I'm wondering, you work a lot with younger queer women of color. Do they know about their queer history? Do they, do they know about Jewel Gomez? I mean, now I know you're going through a revival with your Gilda stories because of Afrofuturism, Jewel. Mm. And so many, you know, young queers of color are leading so many movements, including queer queer ones or anti-racist ones. On the other hand, my housemates who are, are young queer women haven't even heard of Frameline. So I'm just wondering... Well, you work with a lot of queers, and maybe you do too, Joel. Are we reaching younger queers? Is that is that just a fantasy that I believe used to happen? Maybe it never happened. What where do you, what do you all think <laughs> about well, this radical history in particular? I'm I, I mean not the dating history, the 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 radical history. <laughs> well, you know, I think for anyone of any age, I think political education is really important, um, and. I don't make the assumption that just because someone is queer that they are in touch with their queer history or that they have done some political education around whose shoulders we're standing on, right? So specifically for this film, I definitely wanted it to be an intergenerational uh, conversation in terms of bringing in, providing the context, providing the context for, you know, as Jewel went through her life and, you know, experienced her what was happening around her. And and I really wanted to sort of provide that context. Like, okay, there were lots of women's magazines, you know, like on our backs, off our backs. Um, there were bookstores, there were, you know, radio shows and women's music. That was really, you know, a term just for lesbian music. And to really provide that context historically. And those things exist still today, but not to the same extent, I, I don't think, you know, I, I and and I think that even as, queer sexuality becomes more accepted um, in, in, you know, just in, in general, you know, like you have shows like on CW that are for young adults and, you know, they have like, okay, so are you seeing anyone? Do you have a boy boyfriend? Do you have a girlfriend? You know, they're very, they're talking very openly about sexuality, but it's not necessarily, at least I don't make the assumption that, you know, just because someone is queer, that they have that sense of history of where they have come from. I think it's really hard for younger queer people to get a sense of our history, just as it was very difficult for us when we were younger to get a sense of the history, even though now there's more opportunity, there's more available, there are things online, uh, there are so many archives across the country, online, we have Outwards, which is a collection of interviews with queer people of all stripes, of all walks, not simply famous people that have these videos that are two hours long and one can tap into them at any at any point. 
But despite that, I think what we always have to come back to is how much the culture has changed, the culture has shifted, so that a lot of young queer people feel like all they have to do is walk out their door and be queer. There's no ramifications. You know, maybe their parents aren't as nice to them, but other than that, they don't feel it's that big a deal. And one of the ways... I feel that we have to change that perspective is it's very important for us, I think, to have specific, you know, embrace our identities. That's important to your your mental health. At the same time, you need to understand that you are part of a larger universe and that the oppression that's happening around you is also your responsibility. And I think that was one of the important things that we saw during the George Floyd summer. Right. You know, Black Lives Matter was made up, led by two queer women of color, two of the three, but involving a full spectrum of activists from every element. And we we need to be able to see more of that, to encourage more of that, so that young queer people see themselves as a part of a larger activist energy. And people find their activism, I think, through the things that they're interested in. You know, I'm a writer, so my involvement with uh, Conditions Magazine in the 80s was what really uh, helped me step into uh, lesbian activism. My involvement with the programming at Woman Books in New York in the early 80s was what helped me step into a lesbian activist community. So I think if people are engaged in the things that they are passionate about, they could just take it a step further and think about what the connections are to the world stage, you know. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I don't think uh, lesbians in particular are doing as great a PR job as <laughs> other queer groups are. And I think that's why another reason I think this film is so important, Madeline, you really are providing a history that really isn't getting told even in even in, in queer spaces. But having said that, I know that your book, The Gilda Stories, Jewel, is really becoming renowned because in addition to prose and commentaries and journalism and poetry, you write speculative fiction, which was the Gilda stories, which is a story of a black bisexual vampire who had a sense of justice or ethical vampirism, I think they're calling it. And, and in it, it's, I'm reading articles now about this, where you are being cited as engaging black feminism, queer theory, and Afrofuturism, that you invert the typical heteropatriarchal racial paradigm and you make the vampires as giving and make the white people look more like parasites instead of where typically the vampires are seen as the parasites. And so you're really being like lauded. There's this new Afrofuturism movement and you're being seen as the pioneer, which you discuss in this in this film. So can you talk about this book and whether you were consciously aware of all its political implications when you wrote it <laughs> and <laughs> how you feel about it now as the pioneering book in of Afrofuturism, which has become particularly important to young Black women and queer writers? Well, I will say when I first started writing the Gilda stories, 
I had a lot of pushback from some African-American activists and some lesbian feminists who really felt I should not connect vampirism with uh, African-Americans or with lesbians, that it was such a negative that it would not be helpful. And my feeling was I already knew I was going to reshape the mythology I had done as much research as was possible and seen every vampire film ever made, read every book about vampirism, you know, so I was very aware that as a lesbian feminist, my character would be different. And the thing I didn't understand at the time, which I really appreciate now, is that cult followers you know, like Gilda vampires and stuff. It's like a cult in a way. You know, people who love vampires, that's what they do. They, If they hear about a new vampire book coming out, they are there. They want to buy it. They want to show up if the writer shows up. I hadn't really thought about that. So when I did readings from the Gilda stories or when I adapted part of the Gilda stories for the stage for Urban Bushwomen, uh, which played around the country, including here at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts in 1997, I'd look in the audience and there was every kind of person you could imagine. <laughs> there it was people who are interested in vampires. It didn't matter who they were. And I, I had a great appreciation of the possibilities of writing any kind of genre of fiction, uh, but particularly speculative fiction, of reaching out to a broad cross-section of audience. And when I do readings, particularly on college campuses, I think, you know, that's what's really kept the book in print for 30 years, because speculative fiction as a topic on college uh, curriculum has really broadened and blossomed. So, and for a long time, I was the only Black lesbian vampire novel out there and i think there are some uh there may be some others now there are certainly some more black vampires uh female vampires out there now but having you know going to college campuses and having students with very intense and complex questions they want to examine about the novel as they write their papers or, you know, do their presentations, I find I'm talking to every person on the planet, you know, whether they're a person of color or not, whatever gender they are, whatever um, sexual orientation. These classes are full of young people who are interested in the political way I shape the character. So in a certain kind of a little way, I think the Gilda stories is a bit, like, you know, sneaky. The Gilda Stories is a little bit sneaky in its ability to seduce readers into understanding a lesbian feminist perspective as lived out by Gilda. So we're just talking about uh, Madeline's great documentary about Jewel Gomez called Jewel, A Just Vision. I just want to ask a few more questions I love in the film, Madeline, the way you have Jewel talk about how the book started when you're talking about how you were in the uh, on the phone, on a public <laughs> phone. Could you just tell the audience that story? Because I, I just thought that's amazing the way you capture that, Madeline, you know, and I would love to 
here. You just tell people how that was kind of an inspiration for you, because isn't this where books come from, our our daily lives? And you were on the phone and, and some guys were harassing you. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a funny thing now because of cell phones. People really don't relate to public phones on the street. And I lived in Manhattan on the Upper West Side in a very kind of a quiet neighborhood. And I I don't can't remember if I didn't pay my phone bill or it was just some phone problems uh, in the wire. So I went to the corner to use the public phone to call a friend of mine. And as I'm standing there, these two guys, they're kind of high or, and they just decide, you know, to tell me, because I am a woman standing alone on the street, all the things they would like to do to me. And as men are wont to do. And it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, what you look like. It really doesn't matter. It's all about them. So they started in with this and it was, you know, vulgar and annoying. And I, so I said to my friend, hold on, I'll be right back. I let the uh, phone drop and I turned and I screamed at them at the top of my voices using every profanity I could think of and told them what I was going to do to them. And it did not involve any pleasure whatsoever. And one of the guys said, oh man, he's crazy. And he started dragging his friend away and I wouldn't stop. I just kept screaming until they were, you know, half a block down the street because I thought, and then I thought, I'm really glad there's no garbage can right here because I would have picked it up and banged him into the ground. And meanwhile, my friend is on the phone. She hears it screaming. She thinks I'm being killed. <laughs> so I went back. I said, no, Marianne, I'm okay. I'm okay. I, I have to go home now because the adrenaline, you know, with that kind of thing. And women have to deal with this on the street all the time. And we have created a kind of block so we think we're not hearing it, but it's damaging to our nervous systems. It's damaging to our sense of ourselves, our sense of safety. And it, women deal with it all the time, even when they're not conscious of it. So I was very conscious and my adrenaline had shot up so high. So I went home and I was trying to calm down. So I went to my computer, my uh, typewriter at that time and I started typing. And that's how the Gilda stories start. I just wrote out a draft of a story of a woman who gets harassed on the street and she kills the guy. And she picks him up and throws him into the Hudson River. And of course, I then had to think, well, how would she be able to throw him into the Hudson River? And that led me to think, well, she would have superhuman strength. And if she had superhuman strength, who would she be and how did she get there? And that was the beginning of the Guild of Stories. I love that. I love that. And it. I love it also because I went to film school in the 70s and <laughs> vampires studying in film theory, vampires were part of film theory. But this is really the source that I like. How we, <laughs> what we need to understand about vamp women, vampires, especially queer vampires, that how it's how important it is. Not, uh, not. I won't even go into all the film theory that that was right about it. But yeah. anyhow, this film, which I really want to thank Madeline. I know you you two can't stay much longer, Madeline Lim, for making this beautiful film, Jewel Adjust Vision. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. I really recommend everybody see it. And now it appears uh, uh, that Cheryl Dunye is interested in making a series based on your book, yeah. The Gilda Stories. Where is that at? And I'm hoping it's going to have that 
Radical Edge? <laughs> well, you know, I've known Cheryl for years since she did Watermelon Woman. And she optioned the novel a couple of years ago. So she wants to make a TV miniseries. So I'm very excited about that. She and I have had many conversations. We've had some production meetings. And she's pulling together her production team and trying to raise the money to do a pilot so that she can get a platform to approve it. Yeah, fingers crossed. I'm. It's This is a wonderful time for this to be happening, because I'm talking about Gilda a lot, both with Cheryl Dunier, but also, you know, with Madeline as she has developed this film. And it's really helping me because I'm trying to work on the sequel to the Gilda stories and get it to out to a publisher. And so having these wonderful conversations with Madeline and Cheryl Dunier have really been helpful for me as I write the sequel. So, you know, once every 30 years, I'll write a Gilda novel. <laughs> In between your plays. You, In between my plays, right, right. <laughs> yes, and I and I miss seeing your commentaries in the gay press, which, you know, we don't have I'm, much of. Yeah, but. well, I am do, I do a monthly column in the San Francisco Bay Times. Oh, good. Okay, look for that. Yeah, so I've, I've been doing that monthly column, and it's really fun because it goes online in addition to the paper, the newspaper hard copy. Okay, I will look for that. And I just want to let people know that you should check out Quack Map. It's Q-W-O-C-M-A-P. It's online. Check out them. And this film, Jewel, A Just Vision, is showing as part of a double bill at Frameline. And it's uh, part of a queer Bay Area legends. And that package is called Local Legends, which includes the documentary Belonging Trans Indian Story. The director of the f- film, Jewel Madeline Lim, will be, and also uh, Jewel Gomez will be talking afterwards. I highly recommend people see this film, Jewel Adjust Vision, and, and all the great documentaries at Fairmont. But it's so important to support queer history. And that's what you're doing here, Madeline. And that's what you are. Jewel is a very important part of queer history, as are you, Madeline. I just want to say someday we're going to need a film about you. That's right. <laughs> what you do with Quack Mac is so important. Thank you, Lisa. And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to KPFA Radio's Women's Magazine, and I'm Lisa Detmer, and I'm your host today. And today we are looking at some of the excellent lesbian films at the San Francisco Frameline Film Festival. Now we're joined by Allegra Madsen, who is director of programming at Frameline, and Lisa Marie Evan, who is director of the new feature-length documentary, In Her Words, 20th Century Lesbian Fiction. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to actually play the trailer now, and and then I'll just back announce it. Radcliffe Hall. The Well of Loneliness. The Well of Loneliness. The Well of Loneliness. The Well of Loneliness. The Well of Loneliness was kind of the entree to lesbian literature for so many people. At 15, my best friend and I fell in love. While the adults went to the bars, the kids went to the ice cream parlor. That's also where we found our first lesbian pulps. You could take a book home and under the covers at night with a flashlight or something, you could enter a world. It was not a friendly time, and we all hid behind pseudonyms of one kind or another. The acquisitions editor said, your character is black, a lesbian, and a vampire. That's too confusing. And I'm thinking, Who do you think your market is going to be, like two-year-olds? 
Heather has two mommies, two roommates, Mama Jane and Mama Kate. Nice and cute. Mama Jane has a no-nukes sweatshirt on. There's never been a separation in my life between my identity, not just as a lesbian, but as a particularly difficult, provocative, angry, working-class lesbian. I was a feminist and still am, and the anti-porn movement had gotten cranked up. I wanted to write about a different kind of feminism, a feminism that was sex positive. I wrote it purely for the passion of telling the story and just wanting to write in ways that I hoped felt sort of authentic about lesbian sex and, and fun and just capture the deliciousness, really, of lesbian love and lesbian sex. Well, people come up and they get very worshipful, you know, and some of them cry and they say, you changed my life. And I say, I did not change your life. I opened a door. You still had to have the courage to go through it. Take credit. You did it. Uh, that was audio from the trailer of the new film, In Her Words, 20th Century Lesbian Fiction. Welcome, Lisa Marie Evans to Women's Magazine. And... I really love this film. It was really an in-depth look at 20th century lesbian fiction history that would, uh, you really go back and place it in context. And you have some really important lesbian writers that are no longer with us, like Mary Jane Meeker, Elena Dykwoman, Sally Gerhardt, Leslie Feinberg. So you must have been looking a long time and also dug up a lot of archival footage and I love the way you have well-known lesbian historian Lillian Faderman in the film, and she narrates the history of lesbian fiction, early history, and also puts it in context of what was happening in the U.S. And you really provide a historical context of 20th century U.S. lesbian fiction. I mean, you really have everybody in it, and you really cover all the important areas. You, you start off in the beginning in the 20s and 30s when lesbian literature was seen as, and gay literature, as pornographic and could be censored or banned when they had lesbian characters. And they always had to have a tragic ending or couldn't be seen as attractive. So I uh, love the way you talk about the 1928 British novel, The Well of Loneliness, which is one of the very first lesbian novels, which was seen as pornographic when all it said was that night the women were not divided. That's brilliant. And it was yeah. banned in England, uh, but not in the U.S. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the history of lesbian fiction that you thought was important to get across. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you, coming into this film, I knew about 20%, if that, of the information in the film. It was a massive learning experience for me. Um, I had read maybe three of the novels. And so Mary Ann comes with this. She's also a publisher. She runs Bywater Books. And so and Mary Ann is featured in the, in the film as well as an author. So she has this wealth of knowledge and then we have Lillian Faderman, so we wanted to do an outline. She has a wealth of knowledge in going through her books, reading her books as well to kind of get this information and learn about the authors and just really feeding myself the information, um, reading a lot, visiting archives. It was such a beautiful experience learning this history, but it was also so bittersweet and sad because I had not had access to this previously. I mean, and when Nancy Garden, when Annie on my mind um, was getting sued by ACLU and parents in the Olathe School District, 
that was um, just a few miles from my high school while I was in high school. And I had no idea that these books were there. And now I'm, I'm living in Arkansas. You know, we have Sarah Huckabee as our governor and, you know, there's banning and discussions going on now. So I think it's so, it's so important to get the information out there so that we know the information, that we know the history, that it's present because it's been invisible. Um, and so it's just, it's, you know, we've had some authors pass since we've made the film. And so we're really thankful to have caught them on camera and to tell their stories. And we want to put as well, the interviews into archives themselves. So we want to put this out there and then give access to people. Oh, that's fantastic. I think what you're doing in your film, in her own words, 20th century lesbian fiction, and the same I felt with uh, Madeline Lim and her film about Jewel Gomez, you are really, you know, teaching history to our queer community that really doesn't have anywhere to get that unless they take a class in college or right. they go to Frameline and see some of the amazing documentaries. And I hopefully some of these documentaries will get distribution, more mainstream distributions. Yeah, I was going to say too, you know, even seeing the films are getting the history, but how many books are in, in schools that people can read and children and youth as well. Right. And we're going through a banning of LGBT books just as we were in the 80s, which you also talk about in the film a bit, how, you know, this isn't the first time as soon as positive images came out of gay people or Heather's mommy, Heather has two mommies, uh, there was a backlash and the right wing was trying to ban them. And you show that very well. It's a really a learning of our history as through lesbian fiction, I felt. You also show how important feminist and women's presses were and how women's bookstores kind of grew out of these women's books. And in specific, Nyad Press, which was founded by Barbara Greer and Donna McBride in 73 and was devoted exclusively to lesbian literature and had a newsletter of all different lesbian books, which was how we found out about things because there was no internet. And Nyad was started in Kansas City and I'm from Kansas City. So it's such a great connection to see that as well. And you- and Barbara Greer, I saw her as like this godfather of lesbian publishing. <laughs> learning more about her. I mean, it was just a kinship. It was, it was so, it was so cool to see the things that she was doing and what evolved. And I love the story you include about Nyad Press and Barbara Greer told by the black lesbian author, Penny Mickleberry, who really captures the personality of Barbara Greer. That was such a good story. I wish I could play, play that clip. It was excellent. And I didn't actually know Penny Mickleberry. So thank you for bringing that up. That must have been something you were thinking about, which is showing the importance of feminist presses and fe and women's presses and bookstores. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a natural progression in the stories too. They were supporting these women authors, or these authors, and um, helping to elevate their work. So it was it was super important. And then I, you know, I remember going to bookstores. So that just that feeling of going into a bookstore for the first time and areas where you wouldn't have to, you know, hide in a certain aisle that's that's put in the back of the store. So just the importance, I think everybody has connections to these too, to, you know, being in those places. But yeah, the women's presses were super important. And that was something I learned about along the way with that. And my first lesbian book was Ruby Fruit Jungle by Rita Mae Brown, who you also have in the film, who is a character and, you know, and a, and a radical feminist. And so it was the first book that I read that was really positive about lesbian images. And you really go through and track how that changed. And in fact, 
I thought it was interesting that that the first book that had a kind of a lesbian story that was in hardcover and actually got good reviews that had a happy story was Desert of the Heart by Jane Rule. The Desert, I think it's called The Desert of the Heart. And Lillian Fainerman points out in your film, it came out one year after the 1963 publication of the feminist book, The Feminine Mystique, which I thought was really interesting. She's really connecting the dots of how things, time is changing Feminist history is influencing lesbian fiction to make allow a space for a more positive story because it was in the films and in fiction, a tragic ending was required. And then the author refused to sell it to Hollywood because she knew it would be made into what she called what rule calls a Hollywood ending with one of the characters dying. So she didn't sell the rights to make a film until it was made by Donna Deitch into a film called Desert of the Heart in 1986 which was also one of the first positive lesbian films I ever saw. So that's really interesting. And I really appreciate you documenting that transition. And you also have lesbian feminist separatist Sally Gerhardt, who's no longer with us, who wrote the book Wanderground, which is a lesbian feminist fantasy fiction utopian book in 1979. Did you interview her or how did you get that footage? That was archival footage from a friend of hers. So we were um, seeking her out to do an interview and we weren't able to do that. I think that her health was declining at that point, but she had, um, you know, there's another documentary out just about her. And so we were able to get that, that footage from them, which is really helpful. Well, you did an amazing job getting so many authors. I mean, really, it's such an in-depth and complete analysis. And then you also have footage of Alice Walker talking about the color purple, which got a lot of flack in the black community for its very sweet and positive love relationship that she portrays between two black women, partly because one of them was escaping an abusive marriage to a black man. And you also have Jewel Gomez, who wrote the Gilda stories, who we just talked to. I just think it was a, a really great film. I really highly recommend people see it. I really appreciate you making it. I just want to thank you, Lisa Marie Evans, for this spectacular film. In her words, 20th century lesbian fiction, such an important contribution to lesbian history. Thank you for joining us, Lisa Marie Evans. Allegra Madsen, thank you for joining Women's Magazine. There are so many fabulous queer films or films by made by queer directors this year at Framelime, as there are every year. For our audience who may not know about Frameline, can you tell us a little bit about what is Frameline, its history, and its place in the world now? Because it's a preeminent LGBTQ plus film festival. Absolutely. Frameline is the San Francisco International LGBTQ plus film festival. We are the largest and longest running queer film festival in the world. It's a big laurel to carry. Globally, Frameline is kind of the gold standard of, of queer cinema. This is getting your film into to Frameline is, is really an accomplishment. And that's largely because of the group of people that we can convene here in San Francisco. We are one of the first queer festivals of the year. And so a lot of folks come to us to program their festivals. We, bring, we attract a lot of industry, uh, sales agents, distribution folks come and, and see what we play and make some decisions from there. And, you know, San Francisco, the history of San Francisco is kind of you know, this queer utopia and the world still sees us very much as that. And so having your queer film play in San Francisco is just is a dream for a lot of folks. Frameline is really a fabulous institution. And you also, I know, have 
financial support completion funds for filmmakers? So every year, Frameline, we have our call for entries for our Frameline completion fund. We um, are able to fund projects that are at the very last stages of production. And honestly, that is also <laughs> when all the money starts to dry, dry up, when the budgets are going out of the window. And some, a lot of films just need that one little push over the finish line. And we are here for that. This year is really exciting for me uh, because we actually have five Frameline completion fund titles showing in the festival this year. The pandemic has changed some production cycles and things maybe took longer or whatever, but we are super happy that with the Frameline Completion Funds, these titles were able to be finished and we get to show them here in San Francisco. I have young housemates, housemates of color, and one of them knows about Frameline, but the other two didn't. But the one who does is because she's more politically involved. And so... I, same thing I brought up with uh, Jewel and Madeline. I always worry that now that we are so mainstreamed that maybe people don't feel the need to go to gay institutions for community and stuff, but at queer institutions. I think Frameline is so important, so I'm really glad that it's still continuing. I'm just curious, do you have any idea like how many young people come to films? If not, that's fine, because I hope that they learn about it here. <laughs> I don't have numbers in the last two years have been so strange, you know, with the pivoting online and partial in theaters. So it's like, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sure. And it really depends on, on, on titles, but I can tell you that I, as a, a queer woman of color, reaching young, uh, young, young folks of color is incredibly important to me. And sure, there I think there is a lot of conversation about a, a shift from the need for queer community spaces, which I think we could uh, argue against for a long time. But with Frameline in particular, yeah, we are noticing a lot more uh, queer representation in mainstream media, and I think that's great. But I think with these institutions like Raymine have built is uh, a group of queer tastemakers that can kind of help make sure that we shape that shape our queer representation so that it is real and authentic and not just something that maybe a big streamer thinks <laughs> thinks we look like. Thank you. And I just was saying to Jewel and Madeline that I was watching Ultimate Queer Dating on Netflix and I was like, well, that's nice, but, you know, that's not the most important thing to me. As Jewel said at one point, she learned that there was more in the 70s to more to being queer than who you're attracted to. And there's the po lesbian feminist politics is really important to me as it is to Jewel and politics in general and changing the world to a better place. And I think that's where I appreciate Frameline. I wouldn't have seen these two documentaries anywhere else that we talked about today. And I know you're also hybrid this year. You also have streaming. So I'm hoping that a lot of people get to see films. And there any films that you would like to talk about in particular that are lesbian films that you want to make sure people see? This year, we actually, we have a, a whole lot, which I, is really exciting to me. The big one is Bottoms. It is the high school comedy that I have been waiting for since since the 90s, really. It stars Rachel Sennett and Io Adebari, who's really blowing up right now. She's in Abbott Elementary. She's also in Theater Camp, which is a frameline film. But Bottoms follows two high school kind of losers who uh, who, who want to sleep with cheerleaders. So they do what any red-blooded lesbian would do, and they start a fight club. I don't I don't know where 
<laughs> I don't know where, where we could go wrong here. Uh, Egghead and Twinkie, which will be playing at the new Parkway. And it is a very sweet friendship road movie between two high school best friends. It's a real sweet exploration of, you know, a first queer love and also platonic love. The director is also incredibly young, and I just really love that we are able to support a young queer woman of color in uh, creating a, a feature film, which is no small feat. You also have its only life, after all. Oh, of course, uh, the yeah. The Indigo Girls at the Castro Theater on June 23rd at 3.30. Did you want to talk about that film a little bit? Yeah, I, It's Only Life After All is an amazing documentary with a lot of archival Indigo Girls footage. And A, it's great just to like be with them for that amount of time and like and hear their music again. And it's also really eye-opening to revisit that period of time in the 90s when these two women were not in the closet. <laughs> but totally. somehow... On this global scale, there is this like collective denial of a, a very essential part of them while everybody was like enjoying these intensely personal songs. So it's really interesting to see how a person deals with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's definitely hit on in the documentary. And also it's just going to be fun. We are gonna fill up the Castro and just spend an afternoon loving some very classic music. Yeah, I want to just really encourage people because it's not streaming and it, so it'll be at the Castro Theater on June 23rd at 3.30 p.m. to make sure you get tickets. Okay, well, I just want to let people know you can get tickets for Frameline at frameline.org and you need to check out all their amazing films. And if you can't go into the city or you can't get to see them, a lot of them are streaming. So I really appreciate that. It makes it more accessible for disabled people and people over here in the East Bay. We will have 10 screenings at the New Parkway as well. And I was just going to say, and there are par and there are screenings at the New Parkway Theater, which I highly recommend people go to. It's just amazing. You guys, you do an amazing job. Allegra, thank you for all the work you do, hard work. Well, thank you, you so here. much. And that's it for today's show. I am Lisa Detmer, and I've been your host today on KPFA Radio's Women's Magazine. And remember that even though we are on mainstream TV shows, we still need to stay in the streets and support our queer institutions. For Full Circle, thanks to Lisa Detmer and the Women's Magazine. Thanks to Freeland Franklin and Joy Moore, all of our First Voice Full Circle volunteers, participants, and supporters. As Franklin says, support your health and humanity. And yes, we do stand for the liberation of all political prisoners. La Onda Bajita is next.